That brings us then to his stroke and his final years. Mm. I mean, he was totally incapacitated, really, wasn't he? And yet he, he was able... more so as time to went on. Yes, he could barely speak. I mean, to get out the go in, in 1981 was a credit to him, apparently. Do you know, to speak a word of English, he mainly muttered in Spanish, apparently, do you know? But in many ways, he knew what was going on and he made a farewell address to the, the gathering that had elected Peter Hans Kolvenbach. But he himself went into the dark night. I would say he suffered very much from depression, but he fought it. He would say, I am useless, useless. It's all nothing and all the rest of it. And of course, he felt that his, his legacy had fallen apart by the fact that the Pope hadn't seen fit to allow a delegate be appointed who had been an associate of Pedro. It was very, very hard, very hard. And he must have had an iron constitution to keep on going. His death was a very difficult physical affair. But he was there in the dark and totally committed to the God that he'd always tried to be close to, do you know? You say it was a dark night. Did he? Is there any signs he ever doubted his faith? Is that what you're saying? Is it like, or is it like Mother Teresa who just lost any sense of consolation that God was? Close? I don't think he ever lost his faith. His faith seemed to have been with him very deeply from the very beginning, from his early days, and he never lost it. But the feeling of total uselessness, of failure, of having let down the church, annoyed. Uh, irritated, provoked a pope, that kind of thing. Uh, he had an almost mystical appreciation of the papacy, a bit like Ignatius, you know, who said that, oh, well, if the pope decided to suppress the society, I, it would take me 15 minutes to come to terms with that. Well, <laughs> most of us would be 20 minutes or a half an hour kind of thing. There was that loyalty, and a kind of a mystical loyalty, that this is the person appointed by Christ, and then, of course, the popes had taken on the term the vicar of Christ, not exactly what Jesus had given to Peter, etc. He said, you're Peter, and on this rock I'll build my church, and so on. But, so there was that element in it, you know, that by obeying the pope, you're obeying Christ. That's the way our vow of obedience sometimes was understood. And then the issue of conscience created its own problems, do you know? So did he pass through that? Are there evidence? I mean, how did he die? What was the ending? And there's no evidence that, at least, again, not that I know, because I haven't got access to the latest documentation. It would appear that he just got worse and worse. The Pope was called, came as soon as he could, gave his blessing or sent his blessing if he didn't come. Whether Pedro understood anything of what was going on, we don't know. His life was, as it were, torn out of him in the last seven or eight hours of his life. Do you know, there wasn't that peace and serenity that we would like to see. Really? Explain that to me. It was simply the way physical death occurs for some people. Well, he was in pain? Dreadful pain, yes. Kind of a death agony. And people there were shocked, horrified for him, didn't know what to do, nothing could be done, etc. I didn't know this. Are we talking physical pain? Physical, yes. Not, but not spiritual? Or well, we, we don't, don't know. know. 
he himself used to say, or he, when he was celebrating something like 50 years of ordination or something like that, that there's a dimension in human beings to which they don't have access. And it's the dimension in which God deals with people in the depths of their hearts. Now, that's the kind of stuff you get in Thomas Merton. Do you know, it's what you get in uh, oh, Germanley Hopkins talking about him, we're immortal diamonds. There's a, a dimension which belongs to God because we're only creatures, uh, but God dwells in the centre of our being and God orchestrates life in some way or another from that place. And because we're creatures, we don't fully understand ourselves and it's only God who understands us. So he died the way he died. That's it. So it happens that Ignatius died alone, you know, which people say, ah, oh, shouldn't have happened and all that kind of thing. But the guy who was meant to look after him was busy getting the post out, which was very important. <laughs> and when he just died, you know, and the guy said, well, he died in the common way. And you don't know. You're left with the serenity of death after the agony of death, if you like. And it's beyond me. Yeah, I mean, there was no morphine or... Oh, they gave him everything they could give him. It didn't work. It didn't bring that physical serenity. I think you're dealing with a person of extraordinary physical capacity. There's no way, I think, in which a person could have gone on the way he did, except that the Holy Spirit was working through him. That's what I used to think when I'd see him coming down the corridor and that kind of thing in Milton. And <laughs> I was rector then, so I had a bit of nerve kind of thing. And I said, tell me, you know, um, how are things going? And he says, ah, he says, on the one hand, everything is terrific. On the other hand, things are not so good. So he lived in this perpetual tension from the early days of becoming general with a church that wasn't yet ready for implementing Vatican II by and large. So what can you say? He never seemed to get tired. He never took a holiday. He, he never ate anything worthwhile. And he was five foot one, as I say. And, um, but there he was as a bundle of energy. And that bundle of energy took a while, I think, to dissipate in his death. With lesser mortals like me and perhaps yourself, <laughs> the bundle won't be as tightly um, compact and as, <laughs> as entangled and so on as it was with him. If he'd had his way, he'd have worked until the moment he dropped kind of thing. But he'd always have been coming up with new ideas and new issues and he'd be asking, you know, how, how are we getting along with our slogan, um, Jesuit education is not simply to create educated people, it's to create men and women for and with others. That was 1973. In the middle of all that was going on, he was proposing this, you know, as a Jesuit way, since we're deeply involved in education, of getting people to build a better world together and to stand in solidarity with the poor and the oppressed, etc., he was quite a guy. And as I say, I don't know any more than I got from a recent biography by a man called Lamette, calling him prophet of the 21st century, that his, his style of life is prophetic. 
not in the content so much as in the fact that here we are and we're meant to be totally made over to God in order to do whatever God wants or to suffer whatever may come our way in all things to love and serve. So he lived out the Ignatian ideals in a way that make your hair stand on end, I think. Maybe just finish, I want to ask you then, just to sum up, Brian, you've written this book about this man, he may be beatified, he Mm. may be a saint one day. Your own personal experience of encountering him, as you did in person, but also in this work that you did on him, because he must have become part of you in some way as you were doing the work. Well, yes, I mean, whatever is good is influenced by him, if you like. He became the person that one looked to after Jesus Christ. We were happy to think of of him as a person who was leading us in the way of God. Things that otherwise would have been impossible became possible in that sense. I think he is a man one would have died for if called upon to do so. Not, and Jesuits not in Somalia, did. but Jesuits did, yeah. But people would have, if somebody came along tomorrow and said, are you a Jesuit? And I'd say yes. And they say, well, you either drop it or we'll shoot you. I'd say, well, go ahead, you know. And a lot of people would be like that because he opened up a world for people and for me and made us think globally in a way that we're only coming around to now, say, in regard to global affairs such as sketched in Laudato Si and the whole ecology issue. He would have been so for that. And his, his enthusiasm, which, as I remember now, the word enthusiastic means being filled with God, en theos, in God. He was enthusiasm on legs, if you like. And <laughs> he was asked once off the cuff by an interviewer, what does Jesus Christ mean to you? And he stopped and he was silent for a minute and he said, for me, Jesus Christ is everything. If Jesus Christ weren't at the centre of my life, it would be like taking all the taking a skeleton out of a body, you know, from his medical knowledge, the whole thing would just fall apart. That's the way he was, and that's what he encouraged other people to be. So writing about him has been a privilege, really, and even skipping over the book for this interview has been very good for me. It reminds me of things which <laughs> otherwise might slip into the wings, if you like. So he still inspires. Yes, and um, I suppose none of us know how we're going to die, but he simply speaks about, now I find myself totally in the hands of God, and it's a very deep experience. Well, that'll do, do you know? (laughs) Do I hope he'll get beatified? Well, I'm not much into beatification and canonization. Jesuits are sceptical on these things. You know, what difference does it make if John Sullivan... I I think it does make a difference and what you'd get an increased appreciation across the world of the fact that here's a man who gives all of life and all the suffering of the world a depth of meaning which otherwise it might not have. So there's a freshness in his approach and in his being a mystic with open eyes that he, he sees things the way God sees them and he acts out of a love that God has. And if there were a number of those people around, it would be great. Plus the fact that in some mysterious way, he was in love with God from an age and to a degree that very few other people have been. 
He would spend four hours a day praying. I and mean, this was when he was busy. You and I, if we get in a, a modest period of prayer, think we're doing very well. I speak for myself. A novice asked him once about prayer. Pedro said, oh, yes, it's, it's very important to pray. The novice had heard this stuff about the four hours, and the novice said, well, well how do you pray? Well, I, I pray in the morning time. Your man said, well, listen, Father, tell us, how many hours do you put in? And Pedro said, well, I, I get up for four o'clock in the morning, and then I pray for four hours. And during that time, I celebrate the Eucharist. It's part of the prayer. And I also attend the Eucharist of the community because we are community. And then Pedro said, and of course, one has to be praying all the rest of the hours as well. Don't, doesn't one, because we're trying to find God in all things. And God is reeling up the stuff and setting it up for us to pay attention to it and act appropriately. So you've got to be praying all the time. And then he would say, well, you know, in the founding documents, Ignatius had no rules about prayer, but simply said, let a person keep their eyes always on God. <laughs> that doesn't give you any space at all, kind of thing, that you're meant to be Godward from the early morning till late at night and even in your sleep, presumably. So that was the way he went, and he, he lived out of an extraordinary intimacy with the three divine persons. They had set up for him when he arrived in Rome in 1965 a thing which he called his cathedral, and was little oratory um, stuck onto his bedroom. And there was where he met with his inner cabinet each day for as long as he could. If he was travelling, he'd find somewhere else. But while he was travelling, he would still be in tune with God. It's hard to get it closer than that. He's been described as a mystic with open eyes. In other words, he's totally close to God and he's totally won over by the gospel and the gospel demands, and he's totally won over by Vatican II and its demands, and he's also keeping his eyes on the real world and learning by experience what needs to be done and what should be done.